Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hello and welcome to The Rest is History, the podcast that knows its plague from its pestilence. Do you know, I'm reading that from script and basically plague is pestilence, isn't it? But whatever. <laughs> okay. Anyway, moving on. Uh, I- I'm Tom Holland. Uh, I'm a historian of the ancient world. And I am Dominic Sambrook, historian of the moderns. Tom, that introduction was seamless. Perfect. <laughs> Be- beginning as I hope we carry on. Um, today, uh, what we're going to ask is... Um, what with pestilence or plague, depending what you want to call it, um, statue smashing, um, the government on the verge of treating Christmas as a time of solemn humiliation. Are we living through a 17th century moment? So we, we'll tease that out um, very shortly. But f- before that, we've had some interesting correspondence following our first two episodes. We have indeed, Tom. So our first episode, as you may remember, was about greatness. And we asked why... Uh, Tom apart, we don't have any great people uh, anymore. And we had, um, now the British ambassador to Lugash, that is a splendid Return of the Pink Panther reference there. Um, the British ambassador to Lugash got in touch to say, he says, I think you may have underplayed Z. The arc of development and change he will see to fruition is not, is exactly what gets the great tag. I'm not saying it's right, but China has entered modernity and regained self-regard. The evils will be glossed over, as will the credit due to the West. I actually think there's a lot of truth in that. I think Xi Jinping will go down in Chinese sort of memory as a great leader. Um, but will he, know, be called, the, will, will he be called Xi the, the great there? I mean, that's... that's will the, he be? Well, the in question. Chinese, maybe he will. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it, you know, we, we, we said yet in, in the episode that it's a Greek thing. Um, and so very suitably, we have something from Hypatia Cassandra 2020, who suggests, I think you have to be a conqueror or at least a unifier. Erdogan would certainly like the title since he buried Ataturkism and brought back a more Ottoman mindset. But I don't think posterity would give it to him. Well, I, I guess it depends if he conquers Vienna. We'll have to, <laughs> we'll have to wait and see. Yeah. Uh, well, he, he, he has the self-image, though, doesn't he? As great people do. He yes. believes himself to be great. And that's often half the battle. Anyway, other suggestions. We had uh, the Queen and Jimmy Anderson. I assume they were both from, both from you, Tom. I, right? com- I completely agree about Jimmy Anderson, yeah. And uh, Graham Burton uh, wins this one with the very straightforward suggestion, Boris the Great Big Idiot. <laughs> Martin Bright, the distinguished journalist who um, who was played by Matt Smith in uh, the film Official Secrets, um, said that uh, an admiral an admiral had uh, a long lunch with him around 1999 and said, "Give me a militia and my own newspaper, and I could provoke a civil war between England and Scotland tomorrow." I, I guess that would actually be quite a lot easier now than it was in 1999. Which of us hasn't dreamed of having his own militia and his own newspaper? I know. I right? mean, if I won the lottery, they're the two things I would immediately, you know, I'd buy the Chipping Norton advertiser and set up my own branch of some guy. Oh, who knows? Yeah. You, you kind of want your own militia, don't you, Tom? Yeah, of or course. Brixton, yeah, <laughs> Brixton Defence Force. Yes, I, I'd start <laughs> yeah. with Brixton, then annex South London, and from there I'd, I'd gradually move out and it would be the world. <laughs> 
Well, we have um, one other point from uh, John Zmirak before we move on. He says, an excellent podcast. What a fine judge he is. I would suggest that Tom consider whether, yeah, Tom, consider whether the moral claims to greatness filed by the like of Nelson Mandela are just a different means of asserting power. Yes, I mean, sainthood traditionally was a source of of power, but not, I think, power in the the kind of Alexander the Great sense. So anyway, thanks to all those uh, comments on uh, the idea of greatness. Um, In episode two, we wondered about the conditions required for a civil war to take place in a modern industrial country. Um, The splendidly named General Whiskers got in touch with regard to the US and said, "Um, tricky to see how the current red and blue states of the USA could divide as formally, but with current so-called leadership, it is possible. Central states versus peripheral states, an interesting Scenario. I did. I did see one idea that um, the uh, uh, that the um, the red states um, might want to uh, break off and form their own country, and the blue states could perhaps join Canada. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's 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 unrealistic, but not impossible, isn't it? I mean, that's how it seems um, completely unrealistic if, to me. But if you were going to imagine a nightmare scenario for the US in the next, let's say, in the next hundred years, so maybe when we, you and I are dead, but when our children are still alive, <laughs> so getting out. Of- <laughs> Yeah, I'm predicting something, but I'm, that's going to happen when I'm dead. Yeah. I'm pretty confident that um, I won't be held to account for it. I'm pretty it's co- not utterly implausible to imagine secession, right? Or to imagine yeah. some kind of situation where you have the state governments no longer taking direction from the federal government. And a kind of, I mean, you have these standoffs in the American system all the time. And what you've got right now is this entrenched division, don't you, between the coasts and the centre, between the heartland and the kind of liberal metropolitan fringes. Um, and you see that, I mean, that's the extraordinary thing about this election right now, is that despite the last four years, Donald Trump's support has been so resilient. And these are people who, you know, now are going to say that the election was stolen from him and all the rest of it. So, you know, those divisions are not going to go away. And it's not entirely, I mean, okay, it's it's very, very unrealistic. But strange things happen. Do you really think that Canada would uh, would annex yeah, the, re- the the restoration of British <laughs> North America. I mean, that's basically what I live for. <laughs> and um, yes, and so so British English engagement in North America uh, really yeah. kind of kicks in in the seventeenth century, doesn't it, Dominic? Which enables nice, us very to pivot link. that is that, fluidly, that is seamless. seamlessly, that is seamless. Yes, yes. Um, so it's time to turn our attention to this week's subject, pestilence and plague, statue bashing, solemnity at Christmas, civil war, plots, all the rest of it. Tom Holland, are we actually returning to the 17th century? Well, first of all, give us some sense. A lot of people don't know, you know, won't know what we're talking about. So give us some sense of what happened. Okay, greatest hits. Elizabeth I dies. She gets succeeded by James VI of Scotland, Stuart King, who becomes James I of England. He is succeeded by his son, Charles I, who has a pointy beard and a sensational moustache. Um, <laughs> they end up... Uh, England, Scotland, Ireland as well, which uh, the Stuart monarchy rules, um, implodes into a civil war. Charles I has his head chopped off. Uh, a protectorate is established under Oliver Cromwell. Um, Cromwell dies. Charles I's son, Charles II, is restored. 
Uh, plague hits London in 1665. The following year, London burns down. Charles II is a merry monarch, uh, has affairs with all kinds of people, including Nell Gwynne. Um, he dies, is replaced by his brother, James II, who is a Catholic. This is not popular with um, massive majority uh, Protestant England, who uh, Ch- James II ends up getting chased out, is replaced by uh, William, who is a Dutchman. And um, this is essentially establishes uh, a kind of model that then goes through under the reign of Queen Anne into the 18th century. Good stuff, Tom. That was a bravura performance. Thank People can do their A-levels um, after that. So let's just go in on one of those things, maybe the plague, because that's the most obvious. Obviously, we're doing this on the first day of the lockdown. They had a lockdown too in London, didn't they, effectively, in 1665 when the plague hit? Yes, and the court retreats to Oxford, um, where <laughs> the, the most entertaining detail... Um, uh, the antiquary Anthony Wood, who lived in Oxford, reports that um, they uh, they kind of camped out in the various Oxford colleges and so on. And uh, when the court then left, when the the the, uh, the, the plague had ended, uh, people moved back in and discovered that uh, the courtiers had had left turds all over their accommodation. Um, yeah, very nasty. Standard Oxford behaviour, yeah, surely. Very nasty and beastly, uh, Anthony Wood says. <laughs> Yeah, and there's so many funny parallels, aren't there? So I was reading Samuel Pepys's diary. Pepys, as many people will know, is the, this guy who writes this fantastic diary during the, the 1660s of, of Charles II's restoration and life in London and so on. And Pepys sort of says things like, you know, he doesn't want to get a wig. He doesn't want to get a new wig because he fears it will basically be sort of infected. suffused with plague. Yeah, infected yeah. with plague virus. And he says I, I, he wonders how many people are going to be getting wigs because they'll be so worried that they're infected. And that's just like, you know people disinfecting their post or whatever it is um, people do when they're very alarmed about getting COVID. Yeah, I, I, th- I think, um, I mean, obviously plague and, and, and pestilence has swept Britain a- across history. Um, you know, we've heard all about them o- over the, the experience of the, this current pandemic. But I think that one of the things that is interesting about um, the 17th century experience of plague and, 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 and catastrophes generally is that it's linked to a sense of climate change. So that is a kind of interesting parallel again today. Right, because this is the period of the, the Little Ice Age, isn't it? So temperatures dropped, I think, by about a degree, about a, yeah. uh, generally across Europe. Yeah, yeah. And there's a um, fan- fantastic book by uh, the great historian Geoffrey Parker, uh, Global Crisis, where he puts the experience of, of Britain, the kind of and the implosion of, of, of Britain into civil war, the experience of pandemic against this backdrop of climate change. And he puts it in an entirely global perspective and kind of traces the sense that across the entire world, this is a, a, a devastating period of, of revolution, of war, of collapse. Um, yeah. And, and, and whether future historians will look back at the early 21st century and say that the convulsions that, that we're living through were driven by climate change, I don't know. But it's kind of, it is a, an interesting parallel. But it's a terrifying parallel, right, Tom? Because I've read that book. It's about 6,000 pages long. I mean, just a colossal yeah. book. And in that book, he, he points out that in much of Europe, the population in the 17th century actually dropped by about a third. In Germany, it fell by half. So in yeah. Germany, you've got the 30 years war going on. People are being kind of murdered, raped, butchered, tortured, left, right and centre in villages all across Germany. And if you think, you know, one in every two people basically dies, you get a sense of the sort of the massive cultural scar that that century left on people's sort of psyche. Well, that's why I thought that it would be interesting to uh, to 
look not only at the parallels of our present age with the 17th century, but also the contrast, because I thought that that would cheer people up, because <laughs> terrible though things may seem at the moment, they're yeah. not as bad as they were. And, and of course, yeah. you know, the, our experience of, of, of COVID is as nothing compared to London's experience of, of, of plague in 1665. Yeah. About 100,000 yeah. people, I think, died in London in 1665. That's about a quarter of the population. And, you know, there's all these stories about bodies being dumped in plague pits and all the rest of it. And yeah. we can't, we're not in that situation, are we? We, we are not in that situation. And, and of course, although we may feel now that uh, the country is riven with divisions, they are nothing like the divisions <laughs> that afflicted uh, Britain uh, over the course of the 17th century. And of course, particularly in the decades um, that had preceded the, uh, the, the, the plague of London in 1665. So over the course of the 1640s and 50s, when England was, and Scotland too, and Wales was really ravaged by, by, by violent civil war. I mean, on, on a kind of lethal scale, I think, Dominic. Um, kind of yeah, the- I think more people died in the civil wars of the 1640s per head than died in either of the world wars. I mean, that tells you, you know, all you need to know. But you know what, Tom, talking about the divisions, something that I think is a fascinating parallel is the extent to which the divisions are driven by technology and new media. So in the 17th century, you have the printing press, you have pamphlets, you have the birth of newspapers, really. So people are reading these incredibly inflammatory newspapers, telling them about atrocities that Protestants are suffering in Europe or that Catholics supposedly carrying out in Ireland. And this is sort of whipping them up into a frenzy. And really, is that so different from the extent to which people are whipped up to, into a frenzy by false information, misinformation on Twitter and Facebook and, and all the rest of it? It's a society struggling to, to manage an explosion of information, as we are. And also you have, you have I guess, what, um, what we would call the mainstream media being replaced <laughs> by alternative news sources. And you very so much the, have that in... What's the mainstream media in the 17th century? Well, I suppose the mainstream media is 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 um, uh, pamphlets that are licensed um, right. by the crown, and of course, yeah. as as the crown's authority, particularly in London, collapses and then goes completely in the 1650s, you do have this in- incredible explosion. Um, and the, the the man who famously celebrates this is uh, John Milton, um, the poet, the, the poet, Lost. author of Paradise Lost. Um, Secretary to, to, to Cromwell during the Commonwealth, um, the most prominent um, international defender of the execution of, of Charles I. So, in a sense, the kind of you know the chief of propaganda for for, for, for Cromwell's regime. Um, but he completely celebrates this idea. You know, let a million flowers bloom. Um, yeah, freedom of speech completely. But of course, well, uh, that- people rather as we do now, people start to say, "Oh, I'm not actually sure whether we want this kind of stuff coming out." I think we need to yeah. try and try and rein it in, try and regulate it. So they have this whole freedom of speech battle as we do, right? I mean, this is a big issue um, for them. Is it? I suppose it's an old order trying to put a lid on new technological development on a growingly literate population is that is that a fair yeah but it, it's fair? Bit, but it's also about the explosion of what it is possible to, to believe and and to express publicly because part of what the civil war is about is religious and if you, if if you live in a devoutly christian country which England certainly was in the 17th century, then what people are saying about religion matters hugely. But a lot of people will be baffled by that, won't they? Because I remember when I did 
you know, I loved the 17th century. I did it for A-level, but I can remember talking to a, an, an editor at a very big publishing house about 10 years ago, and I was telling him how brilliant the 17th century was. And he said, nobody ever buys books on the 17th century because it's all completely baffling. It's all about the placement of the altar. And, you yes. know, are you allowed to have pictures of saints? And, and are you allowed, is a priest, people are killing each other about what vestments a priest should wear or whatever, or what prayer book they use. To a lot of people, that's completely yeah, yeah. baffling. Yes, I, I, I agree. And I think that that's why I say, you know, there's much greater interest in other periods of history that seem to be less baffling. But I really think the 17th century does matter. Religion matters because it, it, it's fundamental to people's sense of where the country is going. Um, and if you have a passionate sense of what God wants, then it's important for most people in the middle of the 17th century that everybody in the country um, subscribes to that. Because if they don't, the wrath of God will descend on the country. And so therefore, the question of um, what the national church should be uh, what 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 beliefs people subscribe to is hugely significant, and part of what happens um, over the course of the 1650s, after the execution of the king, the establishment of the protectorate, is that that understanding starts to fragment, and you get increasing numbers of religious groups who come to feel that it doesn't actually matter whether the whole country believes what you think. What matters is a kind of freedom of conscience, a freedom to express your religious views, and in a sense. You know, that is looking forward to the future. That is where ultimately uh, the country will end up. Nice. All right. Perfect uh, place to take a short break. And when we return, we're going to be answering some of your questions on the subject of everything so 17th century. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is History. Do please subscribe, rate and review the pod if you've enjoyed it and get in touch with us on Twitter with your comments, questions, abuse and corrections.
This one is from Jonathan Healy, who tweets as Social History Ox. I believe he's slagged me off on Twitter in the past, but anyway, we'll let that go. A very, a very, um, very, very distinguished <laughs> historian of the 17th century. And very active on Twitter, Dominic, so be careful what you say. I thought you were, I thought you were talking about me for a second until you mentioned the 17th century. Um, note that he says that we also have a ruler who has picked a fight with the episcopacy, i.e. bishops. He has a problematic relationship with Scotland and has now banned Guy Fawkes Knight. Who on earth could he be talking about, Tom Holland? So there he is, uh, I think, comparing Boris Johnson to uh, James II, who did all those things, the Catholic monarch who... Obviously, was not very happy about uh, Guy Fawkes' night. So who is Boris? I mean, Boris does seem quite a 17th century figure, doesn't he? Rumbustious, kind of boisterous, slightly unreliable, indeed very unreliable, some might say. Who, who is he? Well, is he I, Charles II? Yes, I mean, when, when he came in after Theresa May, who was um, a kind of famously roundhead kind of figure, <laughs> yes. sober and doer, um, I, I think uh, there was a, a feeling um, on the part of his admirers that he was, he was going to be a kind of merry monarch. Um, and he'd mm. be hanging out with orange sellers and the theatres would be yeah, open and there'd no be grim. cavaliers in ruffs and silks, roistering and doistering. Um, but of course, the experience of the past year, he's, he's basically turned into Oliver Cromwell. He's just rushed around banning everything and uh, turning things down. Although important to say, of course, famously, that, that people think Cromwell banned Christmas. So the banning Christmas is interesting, isn't it? So they, they kind of did ban Christmas because they didn't think the Puritans this is. Um, in the 1640s and 1650s, because they thought that Christmas shouldn't be all about jollity and, and presents and sort of stuffing yeah. yourself with chocolate. It should actually yeah. be about silent contemplation of the divinity of Christ or whatever. Is that right? They, they, they were not in favour of giving liberty to carnal and sensual delights. Um, <laughs> right. Which, which, of course, is pretty much what Boris Johnson is about. Which is, well, he is what he's about carnal delights. He's about carnal and sensual delights, isn't he? I mean, I think that's very yeah. much his kind of shtick. Um, which is but why, so why, by the way, yes, that, that he's kind of closing down shops and you know telling people that they can't gather and have fun is is kind of quite the, the transformation. But Cromwell himself, there's this weird thing, isn't there, that people think Cromwell was terribly dour and ter- that Cromwell was Theresa May, and yet Cromwell himself actually was a much more jolly. Figure. I mean, there's sort of stories about him at his daughter's wedding, yeah. you know, dancing and having great, a great. I, I think of Cromwell as a great laugh. Anyway, well, he we, loved his music. He loved his music as well. Loved his music. Yeah, we've got another question here. Hugh Bourne says on the theme of cancelling Christmas. Can you talk about Oliver Cromwell, hero or villain? I always thought Richard Harris made him quite compelling. You seen that film, Tom? Richard Harris playing Cromwell? Uh, years, years ago, and that's Alec Guinness. Alec Guinness Charles is uh, Alec Guinness is a brilliant Charles yeah. the First. Actually, yeah, there have been two great Charles the First in my lifetime. Um, Alec Guinness and Peter Capaldi played him on telly. Yes, he was very good, wasn't he? Yes, he, he was, was very, very good. Yes, he was. Yes, he was the best. They had the sort of it was sort of agitprop, lefty kind of. Um, uh, it was all about John Lilburn, as I remember, in the Levellers, and Peter Capaldi stole the show, um, sort of channeling Alec Guinness playing Charles the First. Well, on on the, on the topic of that, um, of course, that's that's another intriguing parallel is um, the Levellers. People who who um, had very radical for, for yeah. the time, very kind of you know universal suffrage, all that kind of stuff. Um, so they're sort of the, they're the sort of Corbynistas of the seventeenth century. Absolutely. Well, well uh, or, or more specifically, the Benites, because you, yeah. as a huge admirer of Tony Benn, will know that that, <laughs> that, um, that that Tony Benn kind of discovered the Levellers with a huge sense of no excitement. No one had ever heard of them. And like, I think, in Tony Benn's own mind, no one had ever heard of them until he think, discovered them. Did, didn't he? He Tony Benn kind of um, he he. He compared Oliver Cromwell to Harold Wilson, which seems 
No, he, 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 yes, he said, he said, I'm the leveler of the 1970s. You know, I'm this sort of hero who fights for the people and is, you know, the, the prophet of the socialist new dawn. And he says, um, so who's the Cromwell? Well, it's either Harold Wilson or Dennis Healy. Yes. I mean, it's clearly Dennis Healy. Yes. Anyone who knows anything, I mean, it's a whole different can of worms. Anyone who knows anything about the 1970s will know Dennis Healy would have derived great pleasure from using the army to crush his radical opponents. I mean, I mean, I think that that kind of does highlight another way in which when we look, compare the 17th century to the, the, the present day, it's not just about kind of maybe faintly tendentious parallels. It's also about this kind of sense of a line of descent. And the line of descent is often quite a bogus one, but it gets yes. picked up by people and believed in it. So um, uh, Michael Foote's father, um, Isaac Foote, fam- Isaac. F- famously said that, you know, what I want to know about someone is which side would he have fought on at the Battle of Marston Moor, one of the, the decisive battles in, 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 in the Civil War between roundheads and cavaliers between um, Parliament yeah. and, and King. And Michael Foote, who was, you know, I mean, incredibly well read in all this, a- absolutely identified with that kind of, um, you know, the good old cause, the, uh, the dissenting. Which side, non- which side would I have fought on? Um, I, I, I'm a kind of naturally conservative person who always swings round to the victor. So I imagine I would have begun fighting for the King and then swung round very rapidly to Do fight you? for Parliament. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. So. I've I've always been I've always I mean I'm quite a naturally conservative person too, but I've always thought I would be a roundhead. I mean I, I genuinely have a very round head. Um, <laughs> well, there is that. So <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, you, yeah. You couldn't have worn one of those floppy hats because it just wouldn't have wouldn't have stayed. But on. I sort of see myself as one of those people who, um, you know, I, I'd be all in favour of the the later crackdown on on radicalism and on um, you know using the the major generals as Cromwell did to kind of crush. Um, to sort of crush opposition and, and to sort of to, to take all the fun and spirit out of the revolution. That's that, what I'm all That about. would have been your thing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The Dornus I love. I really like that. I think it would have been more fun to be a cavalier. Oh, it would. Of course it would. But, but, but obviously yeah. not during the, not, not under Cromwell because then it would be too risky. No. So, you see yourself uh, wearing a ruff. I, think, I, well, I could be a kind of Vicar of Bray figure who was the Vicar of Bray kind of famously swinging with the wind. So I think that, that's probably what I would have done. I don't think I would have believed in, in either cause strongly enough to have taken a strong position on it. So you'd have been one of... I mean, we talked about these guys the club um, in men. the last episode, the yeah. club men. Yeah, yeah. So you'd... I, I, I regard them as quite... Uh, they, they seem quite rustic. That's all right. They're, they're, not in, they're not in coffee houses reading these newfangled newspapers, are they? You know, they're, they're centred very much in Wiltshire, which is where I come from, and they, they kind of hang out in woods, and I, I quite like hanging out in the wood. I don't know. I, we'll yeah. see. We'll see. Anyway, um... But I agree with you, Tom, on the serious point about the dissent, by the way. I think you can trace, you know, conservatism and liberalism, later conservatives and Labour, even leave and remain. They can, I mean, of course it is a bit spurious, but you can kind of tease out a line of dissent from the great passions of the 17th century. And there's a brilliant book, which you probably know very well, The English and Their History by Professor Robert Toombs, who's a Brexiteer and a Cambridge professor. And he basically argues that British politics is a huge argument about the meaning of the 17th century. You know, kind of Whig, are Whigs and Tories, which kind of come about at the end of the 17th century. And this sort of, the division between, you know, the sort of Tory vision of the sort of John Bull and uh, all of that kind of thing, and then the, the spirit of dissent and high-mindedness and Puritanism, you can trace those things back, can't you? Yeah, and I, I think that, that, that what, is, what, what is interesting is a number of studies that were done in the wake of the Brexit vote which mapped um, areas that uh, supported the king in the civil war and supported parliament onto areas that had voted uh, for Brexit and uh, those that had voted um, for Remain. And the map, the match was 
was pretty good that you know yeah. it was it was it was london it was um it was the kind of uh, areas that have have profited from uh, close contacts with um the european uh, continental economy um both in the the 21st century and in the 17th century um and it, it was kind of the left behind areas um that uh, in in the 17th century had backed the king so the king is Brexit. That's what you're saying. That's well, an that, that's what that's what muddies that. But essentially, yes, essentially, the royalist areas map onto the Brexit supporting areas. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Because Brexiteers, super keen Brexiteers, sort of loonies loon like Daniel Hannan, the uh, Tory MEP, they they see themselves as the descendants of the Roundheads. But that is that's what's so glorious about it is that the that the, there is no clear line of descent. It's it's all incredibly confusing and muddling, and um, the, exactly who Tories and Whigs are. I mean, they they're kind of, kind of constantly switching sides, and over the course of the late seventeenth century into the eighteenth century, so that that sense of a line of descent is 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 kind of there and kind of not. Um, and the yeah. same, you know, the same in the Victorian period. The the the, the way in which. Um, People on on opposite sides of the political divide in the Victorian period are identifying themselves with the Royalists, and particularly with Cromwell. I mean, the sense of Cromwell as the the, the, the father of liberalism, which is, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, it explains why that statue is is up outside the Houses of Parliament. It's it's not really about Cromwell himself. It's about how late Victorian liberals understand themselves, um, and, yeah. and and you know, and that's, that, that 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 again is part of the fascination of the history is that. People are constantly using it and by using it are kind of changing the sense of it. And I think that actually, you know, on another kind of huge political division that the country is facing now, where again, we see that, which is um, uh, the relationship between England and Scotland. Yeah, be- of course. Be- be- because, you know, the thing about the 17th century is that that provides us with a model of what um, an independent Scotland cut loose from, from, from England and Wales, what, what, what it might look like. And I think that um, it's perhaps not, think it would, it's not an example. Think it would start in the, in the same way, Tom, with uh, a woman throwing a stool at she's cross <laughs> about the new prayer book. Well, Is that how you see Nicola Sturgeon? Well, I, I, I do think so. So one of the things that, that ends up precipitating the civil wars that convulses the whole of Britain and, and Ireland is the attempt by Charles I to impose uh, a, 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 yeah, a, a, a particular model of religion and and what is seen in scotland as an english model of religion on scotland you look at it and you can see that this religious stuff matters profoundly it's capable of of shaking entire nations it 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 completely affects how people see and understand the world and the print of that endures even after christian faith perhaps evaporates and i think that the the line of descent of modern scottish nationalism from a kind of biblically infused sense of, of of the Scots as being an elect is absolutely a, a, a part of contemporary politics. As listeners will know, it takes very little effort to get Tom to opine for hours on end about his thoughts on A, Christianity, and B, Scottish nationalism. But we're running out of time. Just one last thought. Uh, witches. This is the great age of witch hunting and witch burning. And I can't help thinking of somebody else with Scottish, um, or certainly Scottish associations, uh, J.K. Rowling, and the online attacks on her and all that. Is there any parallel there with witch hunts of the 17th century? Um, I, I, I think that um, J.K. Rowling is, 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 is more significant as um, 
a kind. I mean, she's a, the equivalent of of a religious leader because witches were, um, by and large, they were kind of uneducated uh, people who, who who could be punished precisely because they were so marginal, precisely because they they, they didn't have a loud voice. Uh, J.K. Rowling ha- has has an incredible voice, and that's what's made her uh, a lightning rod, both for people who support her position and those who don't. So I, I think that, that J.K. Rowling is kind of someone who's very active in the equivalent of what, what would have been in the 17th century pamphlet wars. But that impetus to find scapegoats, to name and shame people who have you know fallen from the true faith, um, to attribute the ills of society to the moral failings of particular individuals, particularly people who you can pick on and you can kind of bully. I mean, that feels very, you know, like 17th century witch hunting, doesn't it? Yes, and I think what's interesting, I mean, pulling out from just Britain and looking at the whole of Europe, one of the incredibly depressing things about the, the, the witch craze is that it's pretty much the only ecumenical thing that happens. It's the only thing that Catholics and Protestants completely share in, is, is a kind of desire to persecute witches. And again, maybe that's something that we see in the present, that the um, actually there's perhaps more that joins extremes of left and right. Yeah, than, so than, much than divides us, but yeah. we can all unite around. <laughs> Turning on, on women who speak out of place, yeah. Oh, God. Um let us move on to a very different subject very quickly right at the end. A quick note from the fabulously named CFJC75, so presumably a cousin of C3PO. Uh, gentlemen, he says, he's a very fine judge, or she's a very fine judge. Um, gentlemen, just enjoyed your first two podcasts while walking around Greenwich Park. It would be great if you did a podcast on history book recommendations from each century and each decade of the 20th century. Well, that is a good idea. I think we should just do a quick recommendation about the 17th century. Tom, give us a couple of 17th century books that you think listeners might enjoy. Well, I, I, I mentioned one already, which is um, uh, Geoffrey Parker's Global Crisis, um, uh, not just about Britain, about the whole sweep of the world. Um, a really stupefying book and interesting in almost every way it's possible to be interesting. Um, I'd also recommend a book that came out earlier this year, um, Paul Lay's um, fantastic book, on uh, the protectorate, Cromwell's um, period in power, um, called Providence Lost. So play there on, on Paradise Lost. Um, incredibly readable, yeah. incredibly Jolly gripping, um, completely fascinating. And I'll give a couple of uh, my own, a couple of older books. Uh, there's a book on Cromwell called God's Englishman by Christopher Hill, which is short. A lot of 17th century books are very long, so it's a short book. And it really gets under Cromwell's skin and um, is a great introduction to the period, actually. And the other book is one of my favourite books of all time, which I think absolutely everybody should read, even if they have no interest in history of the 17th century at all, which is The Diary of Samuel Pepys. Now, it's very long, but you can read short versions. And I can't think of many other books that get you into the mind of somebody living in an entirely different era. I mean, you know Samuel Pepys by the time you finish that book as well as you know yourself or your husband or your wife or your closest friends. And you you kind of, you know, you're, you're living in his head. It's a fantastic book, a fantastic guide to um, what life was actually like sort of on the ground in the 17th century. Um, and Dominic, in fact, just before we end, um, one one novel, which I think is 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 possibly uh, absolutely top of my list of historical novels. It's called Instance of the Finger Post by Ian Piers. And it's um, set against the backdrop of the the end of the protectorate, the uh, restoration of Charles II. It's a kind of uh, a, a mystery. You have four different perspectives. Um, the denouement is out of this world. Do do read it. It's brilliant. I could not agree with you more, Tom. That is an 
absolutely brilliant book. I remember I, I stayed up all night reading that book. It was, I was, it's so riveting. It's right up there with the secret history or the name of the rose or any of these yeah, kind of great, it's one of the, one of the great, books. great historical novels. It is indeed. Well, anyway, I kind of feel we've only scratched the surface and there is so much more to say, but uh, we've had fun and I hope you have too. So that's it for this week. Thank you for listening. We're going to be here every Monday to start your week with a historical bang. A historical bang, who knows what that could be. Um, so do please subscribe. Do please rate us on Apple Podcasts. And thank you for listening. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Listener.